So last week we were looking at how the sense of self uh, comes into being through the interplay of the five aggregates and that kind of chain reaction that happens when with each sense contact at any of the six sense doors is feeling, tone, perception, formations and consciousness endlessly playing out over and over and over again creating these kind of multiple feedback loops of proliferation that create this whole sense of identity that then we take that to be me, mine, who I am. And this uh, shift, the first two of these, body and feeling tone, are inescapable. They're just part of our biological heritage in a way. But it's with the third one, sanya or perception, that we start to, as John Peacock says, get infected by the I virus. The sense of self starts to come in because perception is more conceptual. It relies on memory and it relies on language. So I may have said last week the Pali word sanya, which means perception, has a direct etymological connection to the English word sign. And we can see that when we bring in perception, we start to be in the world of concepts. So, for example, a bell is a bell is a bell. And I just go, oh, yeah, bell. And I don't really look at all the details of it. I don't have to work out exactly what it is. And, of course, there's a practical aspect to that if every time I came into the room I had to work out oh what are these how do I get up a set oh these are stairs what do I do with them again how do I get up here and what's that thing oh it's a chair I need to sit on it you know we'd go insane so of course we need to have perceptions to help us navigate the world but the problem is that when we live just in that world on a superficial level then it's just oh yeah Leona I know her well, that's Henny, yeah. you know, we, we stay at the surface level of those perceptions. And interpersonally, as many of you pointed out, when other people are doing that to us, it feels very uncomfortable. Sanya or perception also brings in the subject-object duality. So we start to have a sense of things out there and people out there and me in here to whom all of this experience is happening. So we become infected by the I virus and if we don't see clearly what's happening then our minds become these almost like perpetual proliferation machines. And many of you who were here last week when we did the shoe exercise saw that in action. So for those of you who weren't here, I know many of you were sick last week, I invited people to just place their shoes around the room so that we had a kind of a shoe exhibition. And then you were invited to stand in front of one of these pairs of shoes and for two minutes just write down any mental activity that came up in response. So feeling tones, perceptions, formations and so on. Then we went to the next pair. We had two minutes to do the same thing. We did that five times. And then what I should have done but forgot here was I then invited everyone to go and stand in front of their actual pair of shoes so you could look around the room and see whose shoes you'd written about. 
And in some cases, there were stories or assumptions about the shoes that might have been quite different <laughs> from who the actual owner was. So it was just an exercise in seeing how even with something as relatively innocuous as a pair of shoes, we're constructing, concocting, fabricating, formating, if that's a word, creating formations in the mind and then inhabiting them as if they were true and real. So pretty scary almost to see how we're doing that with something relatively benign, let alone when it's more socially constructed in terms of race or gender or body size or health or age and all the different ways that we are perceived and categorized and classified both internally and externally. How quickly we start to go from feeling tone to liking, not liking, excluding, including, tribalism, etc., etc. On an individual and a society level, we're proliferating these uh, constructs. And we can see that often very clearly in our closest relationships because with time and repeat, repetition, our formations easily become more and more solid. So we start to see each other in terms of just our roles, my mother, my daughter, my partner, my neighbor, etc., etc., and then it's they never, I always, why can't they, I should, why don't they, if only blah, blah, blah. Anybody recognize that or is it just me? <laughs> yeah, very common. So the Buddha was an expert at pointing out where and how we get into trouble, we get into pathologizing. And as someone pointed out later, this isn't always, sorry, as they pointed out earlier, it's not that the sense of self is always wrong or bad or a problem. You know, if we're just aware of what's happening and holding it lightly, it's a perfectly fine strategy for being in the world. But the Buddha's particularly interested in suffering and the end of suffering. So these teachings are looking at how the sense of self runs amok, as John Peacock says, where, where we go astray, where things go awry, get off balance. So the Buddha was very clear in articulating how the problem emerges, but he was also very helpful in helping us find antidotes to this whole Process this whole creation of self-referencing formations that become so solid and fixed. Anybody have any sense of what might help to de-escalate this process? Being comfortable with not knowing. Being comfortable with not knowing, noticing. So mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. Both of those. First stage is to bring sati into this process. So sati or mindfulness, injecting sati into the eye virus inoculates us against it to if that, stretching the metaphor a little bit far. But unless we see what's happening, we have no opportunity to do anything about it. So sati is the very key first stage. 
And I had a, early on in my practice quite a powerful example of this that really stayed with me. I was in a relationship. And, you know, like I think many relationships, after a while we might find ourselves playing out a very familiar script, various minor variations on a theme, but same old, same old. So in this example, it felt like my partner would say A and I'd say B and he'd say C and I'd say D and he'd say E and I'd say F and we would just go through this kind of almost scripted scenario multiple times, so often that I got a chance to recognize it. And there was a phase where I'd think, how did we get here again? Didn't we have the same debate slash argument last week? Didn't go anywhere then, not going anywhere now. How is this happening? And then at some point, after numerous playings out of this, he said A and I said B and he said C and I said D and he said E and I said W. And it was like, what? (laughs) And I remember it because we both stopped. There was this pause and we sort of looked at each other and then we had an entirely different conversation. And it was like magic. And I still feel that moment of freedom. I still remember it when I recognized, oh, there's like a parting of the ways. And I realized I have a choice right now. I can go down the same old route or I can try something different. And because I tried something different, he did too. So one of the analogies in the suttas is that it's like two sheaves of wheat or corn or haystacks leaning against each other, two bundles propping each other up. And it only takes one of those bundles to kind of be removed, the other one collapses too. So being able to do that is one of the benefits of bringing sati into this chain reaction. The other very powerful antidote, which some of you may guess because I teach so often in terms of this frame of the two wings to awakening, wisdom and compassion. So sati or mindfulness is the wisdom wing. And then compassion has been very useful in my own practice because when the sense of self is strongly activated, it's dukkha, it's suffering. So being able to apply compassion right then and there is a kind of a triage, an emergency um, treatment. So I wanted to say a little bit more about compassion and its context within these practices. I know many of you have done Brahma-Vihara workshops and retreats and courses with me in the past, but perhaps some of you are not so familiar with this grouping of the four Brahma-Vihara practices, which are four skillful states of heart and mind. Metta or kindness is the first one. Compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And these are four qualities that we can actively cultivate through meditation practice. And they have multiple benefits because having a grounding in these four practices brings in a resilience of heart and mind. It protects us from our habitual reactivity and rigidity and defensiveness. They help keep us out of trouble because Bhikkhu Analyo has made the point that when the heart and mind are abiding in these qualities, there's a kind of a suppleness and a smoothness, 
and those adventitious defilements that Henny referred back to, they can't get a foothold. There's a, like a pliancy and a smoothness, and the adventitious defilements can't land or get their hooks into us. So they're a protection from us acting unskillfully. Because if you contemplate whenever you said or did something harmful, was that coming out of a heart mind that was happy and at ease? Or the opposite? So the old saying that hurt people hurt people, this training in the Brahma-viharas helps offer some soothing and some smoothing and some ease so that we're less likely to act in ways that are harmful to others, to ourselves. And the corollary of that saying is that healed people heal people. So when we can really ground ourselves in the Brahma-viharas, we heal not only our own stress, distress, suffering, but we're in a better position to offer that to others too. So these four practices usually begin with metta, which is usually translated as loving-kindness, not a very helpful or accurate translation. Simple friendliness or goodwill is uh, more accurate and helpful. And it's just a quality of basic benevolence, of wishing ourselves and others well. And then when this quality of goodwill turns towards what's painful or difficult or suffering, it flowers as compassion. So there's a direct relationship between this foundation of goodwill and the ability to turn that goodwill towards difficulty. On the other hand, when that same metta turns towards what's going well, towards happiness and towards success, it flowers as mudita or appreciative joy. So compassion and an appreciative joy are like two side wings, both of them founded in metta. Then when compassion and joy come together, we get equanimity, the balance of the heart-mind that is completely at ease, not wanting anything, not not wanting anything, but just resting. So this attitude, this orientation of compassion, being kindness towards what's painful, for most people is not our default response. We're actually hardwired to move away from pain. So for most of us it takes some training to have that courage and that willingness to move towards pain instead of our usual tendency to reject, ignore, deny, get away from, and so on. So compassion is a practice. It's something we can train in. And I'd like to do that fairly soon. And we'll be starting with uh, self-compassion and using the traditional a traditional reciting phrases method. I think, anybody never done any formal metta practice before? Okay, so you all have some experience. So with compassion, similar process, but we use phrases that are intended to evoke the quality of care towards pain. And the phrases I use, use the word pain, but pain is just shorthand for not only physical pain, but emotional or psychological pain too. So I'm aware of this pain. 
I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. And those first two phrases, even to say, I'm aware of this pain, depending on the situation at Tandagon, no, I'm not. (laughs) No, get it away from me. And then the second one, I care about this pain. Again, depending on the circumstances, that might be a stretch. But seeing that is very helpful. So it also falls into our insight practice. So even saying those phrases, we might notice, oh, no, I'm not so keen on being aware of this pain. Oh, okay, can I open to that? So we'll use the phrases. We'll also use some imagery, which I've borrowed from Aya Anand Bodhi, a Western nun. So there's a different form of metta practice that we can do. But I, I think of it as the radiating energy method. Some of you may have practiced that, where we just abide with the energy of kindness or compassion. And then we extend that energy wordlessly in different directions. With metta, people like Bhikkhu and Alio use the image of a candle flame and the light just extending in different directions. I've sometimes done it imagining warm coals glowing at the heart center and then expanding the heat. Somebody recently told me off for that being not very environmentally aware. (laughs) So we can get very... We can get very literal with these images. You know, some people are not so strong on um, (laughs) imagining or visualizing. But with compassion, I'm borrowing Aya Ananda Bodhi's metaphor of thinking of a, a natural spring water. So the heart just bubbling this cool, refreshing water. So I'll be combining the phrases and the energy together. And I'd like to offer this, if it's comfortable for you, you might like to do it lying down so that you can really connect with the body. So just take a minute or two to set yourselves up somewhere where you can be comfortable for just about 15 minutes. <laughs> 